online communist forum, which we're going to continue when uh, lockdown closes. We'll still have online communist forum and reach for the world. Uh, but uh, this was organised by CPGB and Labour Party Marxists. And this week, it's a week in politics. And what a week. OK, Jack Conrad. OK, thanks. Um, whoops, got some interference there. Um, thanks, Dan. Um, whoa, it's got some music. I don't know if that's me. I think that's most likely me. Um, yeah, we didn't. No, it's it's me. It's it's Radio 3 Jazz Records requests or something like that. Uh, I don't know why. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to start. Yeah, I'm going to start with um, something that I'm not accustomed to um, speak about or talk about or anything, but I just feel that I must do. Um, someone said, you know, life and death, well, this is much more important than that. And so what I'll be talking about is uh, football. And um, what's remarkable, I suppose, is that um, for um, several days, um, headlines in terms of the BBC, ITV, you know, Channel 4, uh, the front pages, not the back pages, the front pages of uh, many uh, papers has been uh, dominated uh, by this um, Super League uh, proposal. I think all comrades will know uh, the rough outline of what was proposed. Um, basically, it was uh, 12 core top teams um, in Europe. Um, who would then be added to uh, by another eight. Uh, those eight could be kicked out and added to. Um, uh, but the idea was um, a league of 20 top flight European uh, clubs, uh, which would uh, generate um, extra um, revenue. Uh, the excuse um, is, of course, that with pandemic, there's been no crowds coming to uh, football games and therefore there's been no, um, you know, tickets uh, sold and the teams are in desperate straits and therefore they've had to go for this option. Um, that story clearly has a grain of truth, but no more than a grain uh, of truth. Uh, even I, as a non-football fan, it's something you're not meant to say if you're a politician nowadays, but, you know, I've heard of rumours, uh, 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 you know, about a, um, a Super League in Europe for years and years and years. And as I understand it, I could be wrong here and I'll be, you know, I'm, I'm talking on the basis that others here will know a lot more than I do about football. But as I understand it, the sort of idea of a European Super League at least goes back to Silvio Berlusconi and the 1990s. I think he owned uh, or was a big owner of AC uh, Milan uh, and uh, he was backed, I think, uh, by the same bank uh, that was um, mentioned this time around, i.e. Uh, JP uh, uh, Morgan. Uh, in those days, in the, in the 1990s, the promise was that these clubs would gain extra millions uh, in terms of, um, of revenue. Uh, now the promise is that they would gain extra uh, billions. And uh, that isn't about inflation. There's been inflation, but what we're talking about here uh, is uh, at a considerably higher uh, level when it comes to um, income. So, yes, this this idea has been long in the making, uh, but it was remarkable how quickly it fell. Um, so for 48 hours, yes, it dominated uh, the headlines. And uh, at least in Britain, uh, we had TV pundits. Uh, we had uh, team captains. We had players. Uh, we had owners of clubs who weren't included um, in this uh, glorious uh, 12. Six of the teams that were included, it should be emphasised, uh, were English uh, teams. Uh, so the, the Football League in England is the richest uh, league uh, in the world. So it's six English uh, teams 
And I think, um, I think um, three Spanish teams and three it Italian teams. I think that was how it worked. What was noticeable um, is no German teams, and that's not because they are um, poor players, and uh, nor was there um, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, which is, as I understand it, people have to tell me, but as I understand it, that is the top uh, French uh, team. So amongst the other teams, there was Barcelona, there was Juventus, there was uh, Atletico Madrid, there's AC Milan, there's Inter uh, Milan. And at the core of it was the billionaire uh, owner of uh, Rio Madrid, uh, let me get his name right, um, Florentino Perez. Just think it's worthwhile mentioning uh, Real Madrid because, of course, this was um, the favourite team of Franco and the Frankist uh, Francoist regime in Spain. And um, this shows you the complexity of football and sport in general. Um, because when there would be a derby game uh, between um, Real Madrid and Barcelona, um, you had politics at play as well as 22 men um, on the pitch. And the politics at play was on the one side uh, with um, Real Madrid is the Francoist regime and the money that they pumped in uh, to that team. And then you had their great rival, Barcelona, and that stood... First of all, for uh, Catalonia, um, remember Franco uh, suppressed the Catalan language, but it also stood uh, for the wider population uh, as some sort of Republican uh, symbol. So there was a battle going on uh, on the pitch. There was also um, a symbolic uh, battle uh, for the fans. And of course, uh, the slogans that they shouted um, and um, how should you put it, the identity uh, that these, um, uh, these football supporters um, had. Okay, so it was long in the making, short in the ending, uh, as a throwaway. Um, apparently, you can now buy up Super League um, t shirts uh, for £2. Um, I don't know what uh, a normal t shirt, you know, like football um, shirt costs except to say that, you know, if you talk to parents of uh, kids of a, of a certain age, or for that matter, people much older, uh, they typically complain uh, that their team keeps changing strip um, in order to generate enormous amounts of money. And of course, what they're generating in terms of enormous amounts of money isn't on the basis of two pound um, uh, shirts. I don't know what it would be, 20 pounds or 25 pounds. Uh, considerably more. Uh, that's the point about it. Okay. So why uh, weren't the uh, German teams involved? Uh, why was there no um, French team uh, involved? I think for different reasons, as I understand it, uh, the ownership arrangements in Germany are different to elsewhere in Europe. Um, in terms of existing clubs at a certain level, uh, there is some sort of limit uh, on an individual's um, ownership. And there's also some involvement of, um, you know, uh, fans, uh, of supporters um, who can buy shares uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, so that might be um, an explanation, and that's certainly been put forward. On the other hand, when it comes to um, France, uh, as I understand it, what we're talking about here is the um, Qatari owners um, of Paris Saint-Germain um, objected. Now, why they objected, again, I don't know. Um, either way, uh, the point I would uh, be uh, emphasizing is that what we saw here in terms of this Super League is a clash uh, between uh, money on the one side and then... Um, the supporters and players um, on the other uh, hand. And, it, and in terms of um, money, uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about in terms of some teams, uh, US corporations, so notoriously 
Manchester United is owned by uh, the Glaziers. It's a U.S. corporation uh, that runs sports um, um, in the United States. And, and in essence, uh, what this was an attempt to do was to introduce a U.S. model. Now, I don't know much about football. I don't know much about American football or American basketball. Uh, but as I understand it, um, what you have is a fixed uh, league. Um, whereas at least in um, Europe and certainly in the, um, the, the British leagues, the English league and the, um, the Scottish league is that you have at every level uh, teams going up a division and also teams going down a division. So um, I've heard the news that Watford, for example, having been relegated from the Premiership League, has now found itself back in uh, the Premiership uh, League. Now, in terms of this Super League, that was going to happen, but it could not happen to the top 12 clubs. So even if Arsenal or Chelsea uh, or Manchester United came bottom uh, of the Super League, they were guaranteed not to be kicked out. And from a business uh, point of view, that makes sense uh, because you want to make sure that you're still generating the millions and millions uh, of uh, pounds or euros or dollars. Um, on the other hand, for fans, uh, what you have, of course, is the dream that your club in Division Three one day uh, can make it uh, to the very top. And we've seen that. We've seen examples of that. It's extremely hard. It's extremely expensive, but it, it does happen. And, you know, if you look at Watford, uh, Watford is a, a sort of suburb, I think you'd describe it as that, of, um, of London, to the north of London. It hasn't got a huge population. It's not like Manchester or Liverpool uh, or let alone London. Um, and yet that could get in. Uh, to the Premiership Premiership uh, League, as I as I understand it from my memory, um, what sort of started to make Watford uh, was way back Elton John. I think he put a, a load of money um, into it. But you can get very rich people basically deciding uh, to put money into a club, uh, and you can boost it up. And that will be something that fans uh, dream of every Saturday. Right. That, uh, um, you know, that, you know, with good luck and good players and good management and good financing, uh, their team can progress to the very top. And but also, of course, if their team does badly, there's always the danger of relegation and relegation is a big thing uh, because your revenue massively goes down. It's not that the fans uh, no longer attend the game. It's that the TV stations uh, will no longer pay a fortune uh, to cover uh, your particular uh, uh, game. So as well as US corporations being involved, uh, we have uh, a Chinese capitalist, I don't know who, uh, the son of a Chinese capitalist, that's what I, I read. We also have um, Arab royals. Um, I've heard about Newcastle uh, in that respect. Uh, but anyway, uh, we also of course have uh, our Russian oligarch uh, in Chelsea, and he certainly pumped huge amounts um, um, into uh, Chelsea, which has put it uh, right up uh, at, at the top, but not guaranteed. And that's the sort of, uh, how should you put it, uh, the joy of sport, that the, the outcome uh, isn't predetermined, that even with extremely expensive and talented players, you can still lose on the day. Things can go against you. You know, you can score an own goal. Someone can get um, uh, injured. Either way, uh, uh, no game uh, is uh, guaranteed. So against this big money, uh, we then have, um, um, how should you put it, uh, the fans. Uh, we have players and all the rest of it. And I think what I would emphasize or try to get my, he my head around uh, this is that for large numbers of uh, people who watch football, let alone attend uh, football, uh, what you have is something that's bigger uh, than going along to a film or going along to a play. You know, I can go along to a play or watch a film uh, and I can cry 
uh, during it. I can laugh. I can come out on a high. The difference is that with football, this is a 52 week in the year experience. And even if it's not the season, you're still looking at the transfers. You're still looking you know, at rivals and who they are moving. This is something that people get community from uh, and some sort of sense of identity uh, that isn't unreal. It might be imagined, uh, but this is something you can talk to people in the pub about, in the, in the, on, the, on, the, on the bus queue, um, on the bus, at work, at college, uh, wherever you happen to be, you can talk football to most people except me because I, I always say I don't know about anything about football. And hey, nonetheless, that's what we need to understand. This, this is something more uh, than theatre, more than film. This is something uh, about identity, about who you are and who we are. So if you talk to a football fan, they will talk about we and you have to discover who we is. Uh, but it will be a team and it's unlikely to be the national team. It will be a local team. And, and therefore you have this very strong sense of local community. But at the same time, what ought to be emphasised, um, certainly when it comes to the English teams, I don't know enough about um, Spanish teams or Italian teams. Uh, I haven't travelled everywhere in the world. Uh, but what is fascinating for me as a sort of non-football fan is when I do go uh, to various countries, especially in the so-called third world, the, the number of people, you know, you go to a bar uh, and there'll be a television on and they are watching the English football league. They're watching an English game and they look at you and they'll say, where are you from? And, uh, you know, you say England or London. When I was in India, you had to say London. I don't know why they couldn't understand England or Britain, but you had to say London for some reason. Either way, although India is completely obsessed by cricket, uh, what you've got is a mass audience and a mass identification, which is bizarre, with English teams. So someone will be coming up to you and saying Manchester United and then talking stuff about the, the latest manager, or the latest signing, and I'm just nodding my head. But I've found that when I've been to Cambodia. I found that when I've been to Egypt. I found that when I've been to Vietnam. I mean, it, it, it's quite incredible uh, that what you have is not only a very strong following uh, in Manchester uh, for Manchester United, although I have been told by comrades who come from Manchester that the real team, that real Manchester people support, sorry, if I'm wrong here, is Manchester City. That's the real Manchester team where Manchester United is seen as the team for them out there that simply follow success. We are the real loyalists uh, to Manchester. And you, you tend to get those sort of divisions uh, played out in, in other towns, maybe for other uh, reasons. So we all know, at least those that come from Britain, will know the rivalry uh, and how politics and religion and class overlay Rangers and Celtic, Celtic being Irish and Republican, Rangers being loyalist and uh, orange and Protestant. But you also get a bit of that, as I understand it, again, in Liverpool, between Liverpool and uh, Everton. And one can carry on uh, in terms of um, uh, other teams. So, you know, in, in London, where I am uh, famously uh, Tottenham, um, is uh, Jewish. Uh, you know, the fans shout up the Yids, uh, which is something that's very politically incorrect, but try to stop them. Uh, they are Jews and they will call themselves that because their opponents uh, used to taunt them with that and they take on uh, this identity. It's a bit like, you know, the desert rats in uh, uh, World War uh, uh, Two. So this sense of community, this sense of identification, uh, with teams is very complex. It is very intensely local, uh, but it's also wider uh, than that. People who, who've never even been to Manchester will strongly, passionately uh, identify uh, with uh, Manchester United. Um, I haven't come across it with Arsenal or Tottenham, but I'm sure, I'm sure it, it, it exists. Okay. Um, so what's interesting about that is when this Super League uh, proposal came along, the reaction of uh, the, these people, and we're talking about fans, supporters, people who are uh, um, 
who identify uh, with the, their team. Uh, they were talking about their teams being taken away uh, uh, from them. Well, it has to be said historically, uh, there's no basis for that. It's like talking about reclaiming the Labour Party. Uh, when was the Labour Party ours, I asked myself. Well, never really. You know, if one wants to get into an argument, one can start talking about 1900. But the reality of the Labour Party was that this was a tool of the trade union bureaucracy and a trade union bureaucracy that very quickly consolidated itself. Uh, and it was certainly never uh, an instrument of working class self-liberation. Um, it was... Um, something that mediated uh, class conflict uh, in Britain, but it was certainly not, um, you know, simply uh, a working class party. And I would say something similar along the lines of that with football. Um, again, I don't know the details. Um, you could say that football begins, you know, on the village green uh, along with cricket um, and uh, other such stories. And, and undoubtedly, that's true. So, you know, two villages would um, uh, compete with some sort of pig's bladder and bash each other about. And eventually we arrive at uh, something we recognize as professional. Uh, well, the, the present game, I don't know when, but I would guess, I'm guessing now, 17, you know, 1870, 1880, that sort of period. But as I understand it, what we have here um, is a situation of where it's not um, uh, locals who form themselves into a team. Uh, this is done by uh, others. So in terms of a team that I know about, I used to live next door uh, to its stadium, um, Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal began life as uh, Woolwich Arsenal, which is uh, uh, in the south uh, and it began, as its name would suggest, um, uh, a munitions um, uh, factory. Um, it then moved to North London. And what's notable is that the authorities changed the name of the tube station that's next door to the stadium uh, to Arsenal. I can't remember what it was uh, called before that, something road. Um, either way, uh, um, that wasn't unique. And what you had is the role of money um, from a very early stage. But what was also noticeable is that uh, uh, with football um, is that this was definitely a game that working class people watched and they would watch it on a Saturday. They would watch it on a Saturday afternoon because in Britain, the norm was a five and a half day week. And so workers would work five and a half days. They would work Saturday morning and then the men uh, would go uh, to watch football and then they would go home. Sometimes some teams uh, played on a Wednesday. Again, I, I, I don't want to go there, but there's a team in Sheffield called, as it gives the name away, Sheffield Wednesday. So that was the team that played Wednesday. But what was notable about this, although it was controlled uh, by money, uh, it involved working class spectators, but also working class players. And what we had from a very early period is the ability of working class players who, in essence, uh, were professionals uh, to beat uh, teams of aristocrat and upper middle class uh, players. So these working class teams uh, could beat uh, the old Harrovians or the old Etonians or Oxford University or whoever it happened to be. Um, so you had the role of money, uh, but you also had uh, working class teams and working class people identifying with working class players. And, you know, talk to some old gits or maybe talk to some old gits, uh, uh, you know, about their memories of their old dads. And they would tell you that these players would mix socially uh, with the um, supporters. They would go to the same pubs. They would go to the same fish and chip shop. Um, you know, they'd have lodgings uh, next door uh, because until uh, I think the 50s, late 50s, I'm not sure of this, uh, you had um, a limit on how much you could play, how much you could pay players. 
And um, that was £20. So players would get at a maximum £20 a week. And the guy that led uh, the resistance uh, against that cap uh, was a famous guy, at least amongst people of a certain age, called Jimmy Hill. He was an ex-Fulham player. Um, you would know him because he had an enormous chin. And you can see pictures of him as a Fulham player with a pipe um, in his mouth, different times. Uh, but he led the Professional Footballers Association. And these were the people that busted through uh, the £20 um, uh, limit. And it was his teammate, um, is it Johnny Haynes? Johnny Haynes sort of uh, conjures up a memory, um, who was the first guy to get 100 quid uh, a week. Well, you look at it now, and uh, what are we dealing with? Um, let me see if I've got my figures. I'm going to have to search for this one. I don't know if my piece of paper has gone walkabout. Okay, my piece of paper seems to have gone walkabout, so I'm going to have to rely on my memory. But I looked up the highest uh, paid uh, players and what we're dealing with now per week in terms of the highest uh, uh, paid player is 2.1 million a week. Um, that does compare somewhat uh, with uh, Johnny Haynes' um, 100 uh, uh, pounds uh, a week. Okay, so you've got this spiral of um, uh, wages uh, over the years, which continues. So uh, what players can command goes up and up and up uh, with every year uh, that passes. Now, I think what I would uh, want to emphasize here is having read some of the left press and uh, again, not being any, you know, not knowing much at all about football. I've been quite stunned by the um, ignorance and the simplicity of the commentary. Um, you know, you would have thought that um, us on the left who want to be able to talk to ordinary people, you know, should be concerned about something that involves on a passionate level, millions of people. Uh, in Britain and billions uh, of people uh, across uh, the planet. But the, the commentary we get is at the best ignorant um, uh, and uh, at worst, um, just completely uh, um, uh, misleading. Okay, so what we are told in terms of uh, socialist worker by comrade uh, Sam Ord is that football is about sucking money from us. Uh, football is just about profits. Well, that might be true for the glaziers. I don't know enough about the American setup, and I, but I'm sure that's true uh, with uh, some teams in the United States, but I'm just not going to go there. Uh, what I do know uh, about the English league uh, is that definitely is not the case for the vast majority of clubs. The vast majority of the clubs are loss makers. The vast majority of clubs and their owners, what they're interested in is silverware. And how they get silverware is through players. Uh, the Financial Times has very good coverage, by the way, of football, uh, not just from a business angle, but uh, analyzing football uh, as well. And they actually conducted a study uh, of the English league. And what it showed is that whatever manager you've got, apart from a couple of a couple of teams, it's the players and how much they cost that determine where you are in the league table. So the more expensive players you've got, uh, the higher you're going to be. That's just a, a computer a calculation. Uh, I'm not saying that's all you need, uh, but nonetheless, that does tell you something. But what you've got is precisely, you know, uh, Arab royals, uh, Russian billionaires, uh, um, consortiums who are not investing in football because it generates huge amounts of profits for them. What they're 
investing in is prestige. What they're investing in is fun, enjoyment. I own this team. It's the top of the most important football league in the world. Aren't I an important person? Well, yes, uh, if the team is the top and uh, all the rest of it. Where the money comes from is not the teams, right? It's from advertising, right? It's advertisers that make money out of football. It's advertisers that pay for the football, but it's not the teams uh, that are generating profits. We should view most teams uh, as something that are there for the enjoyment of uh, the fans. That's true. Um, not only uh, in the stadium, that's a secondary question, but on TV. And if you can get people watching en masse on paid for and advertising TV, uh, that is something advertisers will pay for and therefore the TV stations pay for. But what do the owners, what do the people that run these teams do with that money? It's not into their deep pockets. It's spending it on more players, better players. Uh, that's where the money goes. OK, so just discussing uh, that one. What we need to understand uh, uh, about football, like with um, a lot of games, um, is that there are limits. And uh, what you have um, is a situation that only allowed 22 people on the pitch at the same time. And therefore, if you take a player who's 5% better than another player, and I know you can't judge that easily in football as you could if you had a, a running race or um, how far you can leap or, or jump or, or whatever or throw something. Nevertheless, you can come to that sort of judgment and that's why you get this um, spiral of um, the cost of a player. Because if a player's 5% better, then your team is going to be better and it's going to end up higher up uh, the table uh, as opposed to lower down the, lay, the, ta the table. Your fans want that. You want that. The TV companies uh, want that. The players uh, want that. And in terms of the players, we still have a situation uh, of where, in general, it's played by working class uh, men, boys. Uh, there is a women's league and that's growing and that in terms of its audience, it's growing. But this represents a way out of poverty. This represents uh, for thousands and tens of thousands of working class people, the prospect of wealth. And whereas you have billionaire um, uh, owners, you certainly have multi-million uh, um, uh, uh, players, multi-million. Uh, I've already mentioned, uh, you know, 2.1 million uh, a week. But of course, for everyone that succeeds, you've got a hundred, a thousand, maybe ten thousand uh, that don't succeed. And uh, um, you know, all teams, as far as I understand it, have some sort of youth program, some better uh, uh, than others. Uh, uh, but if you just look. Uh, at where these uh, guys come from, unlike uh, the um, team, team GB uh, that was at the Olympics, where half Team GB uh, come from public school background. Half. Half. Uh, you wouldn't find that in football. You'd find a situation in football, I would guess, at 95%, uh, maybe more, uh, come from a working class uh, 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 background. And some of those players... Uh, will retain some sort of uh, working class identity, some sort of identification uh, uh, with the fans. Hence uh, the strenuous uh, objections uh, to this um, uh, Super League. OK. Um, right. This is uh, um, still uh, uh, with Socialist Worker, the Comrades in Socialist Worker. What we're told by the Comrades in Socialist Worker is the cost of... Um, uh, a ticket to a top flight game is outrageous and uh, I'd have to sort of nod my head to it. Uh, I've been told uh, that it's £97, for example. I would guess that would be a Chelsea or, or an Arsenal, which is the sort of price in London for a good opera seat. So, you know, uh, opera is an elite art. Um, £97 is an expensive ticket uh, for people in uh, Britain, but people pay. Uh, that sort of price uh, for it. 
But what they also tell us is that um, competition is something that's encouraged by the bosses. So the, the idea is uh, that uh, this is the SWP version of it, that sport, modern sport comes from public schools. Uh, this was something that they used to inculcate to um, um, train the best and make these uh, colonial administrators fit. And they, they took that model and they introduced it to the workers and they deliberately set up equivalent of uh, Rangers and Celtic, Everton uh, and Liverpool, Arsenal and Tottenham in order that workers uh, could fight uh, uh, each other and they uh, could rule. And so you get in socialist worker the idea that competition competition is bad and what socialist worker says is that cooperation is good now to me that is um you know dumb any marxist uh, looking at that uh, dichotomy will instantly come up with you and say well what we actually have here in terms of uh, competition and um, cooperation is the unity of opposites which is the nature of sport, certainly when it comes to team games, but even if it's an individual, you know, one against the other, you still have to respect the rules. You know, you're still in a situation that if you're running a race, you've got your lane. Or, you know, if you're in a chess game, you can't move the king three spaces. You have to cooperate with the other player. But certainly when it comes to football, not only have you got externally imposed rules, you know, the um, uh, offside uh, rule. I don't know anything about that. I don't understand it. I don't know who does understand it. But you've got the offside rule. But also what you've got is an incredible, incredible cooperation between 11 players on the same side. So if we take training of football players nowadays, half of it is about fitness. So the players nowadays, compared with 20 years ago, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, are super fit incredibly fit they are athletes but also what you get they're a bit like london taxi drivers london taxi drivers have to memorize all the streets in london and the quickest route from a to b that's how they become taxi drivers they cannot use sat navs they have to have it up there and what you have is medics saying that their brains are of a different shape they have a different mental uh, development and you'll have the same argument. I have the same argument really about football players. Football players, you can see a football player, just look at the size of their legs. Uh, you know, they're, they're like tree uh, trunks, incredibly strong uh, legs. You know, in the olden days, you know, players used to stop, um, you know, in terms of extra time in exhaustion. That very rarely happens nowadays because they are so fit and they keep moving. You know, 50 years ago, they actually physically couldn't do it. But also my point is they are trained to perfection when it comes to a sense of the pitch and where their own fellow team members are and where their opponents are and how to pass a ball almost instinctively. Um, and that's the analogy I'm giving uh, with a London uh, taxi uh, uh, driver. So cooperation and competition. Yes, they're opposites, but we should understand them as unity and opposites. And it almost, the SWP almost smacks to me of that their dream of sport is the equivalent of a parade in North Korea with everyone cooperating in terms of producing uh, pictures with flags or something of the great leader. Um, you know, perfectly coordinated, wonderful stuff, wonderful cooperation, no competition. Um, who can get their fastest or whatever, plenty of cooperation, no competition. But how would sport work on that? Sport cannot work uh, without competition. You know, what's the point of a, a sport, a running, uh, you know, um, a hundred meters um, um, uh, race when everyone crosses the line at the same time? Uh, what's the point of a football game when every result is 1-1? Um, there's no drama there. It's just ridiculous. There's, there's no sport. And just to go back uh, to the origins of this, um, you know, Chris Knight of the Radical Anthropology Group tells me, you know, and uh, that's, he, that's from his first hand experience that young men 
for example, in the Congo jungle that we're talking about in conditions of hunter gathering, young men will go up trees in order to get um, honey uh, to bring it back and they'll suffer, uh, you know, bee stings because this brings them prestige. And, you know, they want to show that they can get up uh, this bloody tree. They can bring down the honey because with the honey, although they don't want to boast about it, but yeah, the young women look at them and say, oh, you know, he's a good guy. Uh, that sort of type idea. So there's competition. Uh, and uh, that goes back, one would gather, uh, to our earliest times. And we're not talking about red in tooth and claw, um, but we are talking about an aspect of humanity. So although, um, you know, sport has been described by George Orwell as, uh, you know, war without weapons, precisely it's war without weapons. Um I'm not saying no one gets killed, by the way, but it's without weapons. OK, um, so who makes the money out of this TV uh, advertisers, people who want to market their goods, the betting industry? Certainly they uh, uh, make a profit, uh, but it's the play thing in general, in general of uh, uh, billionaires. There are exceptions, uh, which I've already uh, mentioned along the American American model. Uh, but it isn't simply uh, about making money. Uh, there's more to it uh, than that. Um, oh, yeah, I just wanted to illustrate uh, this. Um, I found my uh, top player, by the way, uh, Lionel Messi, uh, 2.1 million a week. And then um, Cristiano Ronaldo, you'll know about these guys more than I do. He only gets 900,000. A week that compares with uh, Johnny Haynes, uh, 100 uh, pounds back in um, Fulham days. Okay, um, so this this really does bring me to the problem that we have um, that in terms of supporters, uh, while they might you know line up against uh, the Glaziers in um, in Manchester. Uh, because the Glaziers are out to exploit Manchester United and are out to make a profit uh, out of Manchester United. Can you say the same thing about Abramovich um, and Chelsea? Well, no. Um, you know, if, you're, if your guy is putting money in uh, to the team, um, the fans ain't going to boo the guy. The fans will welcome the guy. And so if, you're, if your club is in trouble and a billionaire comes along uh, from Thailand, um, you know, you're going to be saying good. You're not going to be saying, oh, my game, my team has become commodified. Your opponents might be doing that. So in Germany, as I understand it, and I have heard of this one, um, uh, Red Bull, the drinks company, brought up a um, East German club and named it, renamed it Red Bull. Uh, so they're advertising every time they play it, put a load of money in. So it's doing well. All their opponents are shouting equivalent of prostitutes, sell out, sell out. But those that support Red Bull or whatever it used to be called are going, hey, my club's gone from obscurity uh, to top flight, top the top flight. So this is a very complex uh, question. Um, it does divide. Um, the working class. It does line up the working class both against billionaires sometimes, but also behind uh, millionaires or billionaires uh, at um, other times, uh, for example. Um, okay, socialist worker again. Uh, this is my old friend, uh, Comrade Orr. Uh, he says, for sport to have real value, capitalism has to be defeated. Well, to me, that's an ignorant thing to say, you know, as a Marxist. What does, what does a Marxist mean by value? What we mean by value is two things, exchange value and use value. And when we use the word value without putting the word use value in front of it, we mean exchange value. So I'm going to read that in Marxist terms. Sport to have real value, to have real exchange value, you have to defeat capitalism. Well, that's a piece of nonsense, isn't it? So let's kick that one aside because there's not going to be exchange value uh, when we defeat capitalism. So what about use value? Football doesn't have any use value under capitalism. Well, go along to a match on a Saturday. Look at the billionaire's face when they win. The billionaire is uh, getting use value 
uh, from the enjoyment of the game and the team winning or playing playing well, but so do tens of thousands of others in that stadium. They're getting use value from it. And so are millions watching it on TV, uh, either in bars in Mumbai or sitting at home, um, you know, watching it on Sky TV. Uh, so, yes, it has use value. Commodities have use value. Um, we're not going to liberate um, um, football simply by getting rid of capitalism. It, ha it has to be and is more complex uh, than that. And this really does bring me uh, to a close on this one. And this I've got no easy answers to it, but I've been reading um, not the so just the Socialist Workers' Party, who don't really have anything intelligent to say um, on this question. I've been reading... Um, the socialist and uh, comrade John Reed, the guy that used to work on the underground RMT member who's there, uh, writer historically on sport. Nice guy, nice guy. We've had him along uh, to talk. And basically his program is along with Spew is as follows. The fans, the players, uh, the staff, uh, the trade unions, the wider workers movement ought to get together. Uh, to kick out the billionaires. And I go, yeah. The problem with that program uh, is you kick out the billionaires and, okay, then what happens to uh, Chelsea? Does Chelsea, is it able to afford two million or a million quid a week uh, for a player without its billionaire? Are the trade, are the, where do the players uh, get their money from? This is not a profit-generating uh, business in any direct sense. It, it's it's somewhere that you put revenue into. So again, I get get into a problem with the spew thing. I understand where they're coming from. They have a pamphlet called Reclaim the Game. I've already critiqued that. I don't think we ever had the game. Uh, players and uh, uh, fans were closer together in the past. That's certainly uh, true. And they're getting further and further apart. That is true. But ownership and control of the game no. Um, so there's a problem. And I'd also say that there is a problem. It, you know, it, it, if we're going to appeal to the fans, we have to say that there is a contradiction, I think, between performance and democracy. And that's why even in the German model, uh, they allow billionaires in uh, to invest in the game. But I'm not going to go there. I, I'm really just introducing the subject. We do have an article uh, coming um, in next week's weekly work by someone who knows more about football than I do, which isn't saying very much, uh, but I, I, I know that other comrades will have uh, views um, on this question. And it is an important question. Uh, that's what I would say. It's not the most important. It's not more important than life and death, uh, but it does rank there, up there, uh, for lots and lots uh, of people. And you might say then alienation, nevertheless, uh, in the same way that religion matters to us because people believe in it, we've got to take it seriously. And so even if you talk about it as a form of secular religion, uh, we wouldn't be in the position of saying, oh, religion is just bunk. Um, football and sport is more than that. OK, I'm going to be very quick now um, because I've already taken up an enormous amount of time. So I've already taken three quarters of an hour and over. So I'm going to try to finish very quickly in the next few minutes. So I'm simply going to say Boris Johnson, sleaze, um, Boris Johnson, character, uh, Dominic Cummings, you're a disgrace and you were responsible for loads of COVID deaths. James Dyson, you know, can um, text Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson jumps. Um, we have the story of... Um, uh, David Cameron, who originally the rumor was that he was up to gain 20 million uh, if he sold his share options in uh, Greensill. Uh, the latest story in The Times is actually if the top billing for these shares was true, he stood to gain 200 million. Uh, and I think what we have is a little vision of actually what real government and real business is for the bourgeoisie. It's not how much money you've got. It's not as simple as that. Contacts matter. And the role of the state in modern capitalism has become more and more important, uh, despite Thatcher and all of that stuff. 
And what we have precisely because of Thatcher and privatization and the mix of the state sector with the private sector is precisely the necessity of the phone call, the text message, the deal, uh, the agreement uh, that your company will be at the top when it comes to making a bid and you have an idea of what criteria uh, uh, are needed to make your bid successful as opposed to your uh, a foreign rival um, who hasn't hired a former cabinet minister or a former prime minister. We also have the story of Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, telling us uh, that we ought to be grateful for our present generation of uh, politicians because they aren't corrupt like previous generations of uh, capitalist uh, politicians. Well, I actually think they are. Uh, <laughs> I think they are uh, equally uh, corrupt. We also have the story of Carrie's best friend, uh, Carrie Sim Simmons, the um, fiance of Boris Johnson. I think that this is very much a Lady Macbeth story myself, very much like Cherry Blair being the power behind the throne, or, or who is it? Um, can't remember her first name, Faulkner, um, I think, um, under the Howard Wilson uh, government. I can't remember her name, but the kitchen cabinet, they used to call it. I don't believe that she exercises uh, a key influence um, on government. But this is all about different factions of the Tory party manoeuvring. Um, um, it isn't simply about corruption. Uh, I don't think, on the other hand, that as a result of all this, um, you know, back and forth accusation, you know, did Dominic Cummings leak this um, 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 email messages from uh, Dyson and all? I don't see myself this having a significant impact on May the 6th and local elections, Scottish elections, Welsh elections, London elections and all the rest of it. My expectation is surprisingly uh, may, mainly because of uh, the vaccine program. The Tories doing relatively well uh, and Labour doing relatively badly. That will be my expectation. Um, Unite for Freedom, the demonstration in London yesterday. Have a look at the pictures. They look normal people. They look just like you and me. Uh, well, more like you than me uh, in terms of age. Uh, but yeah, uh, what are they demonstrating about? Thousands and thousands of people. Uh, out on the streets of London. Their slogan is no longer no lockdown because that's starting to ease, starting to come to an end. So in London, you know, you can go at least sit outside in the lovely sunshine in the pub. You can go outside, you know, uh, um, onto the uh, restaurant tables outside the restaurant. You know, you can mix socially uh, with um, X number of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the lockdown is easing. So the latest demonstrations, big demonstrations, are against vaccine passports, and it unites all sorts of different people. I would say maybe at this risk of complete simplification, what you have is the libertarian right and the libertarian left. That's crudely put, but I think that would be something near the truth. So you have um, an actor, a right-wing actor called Lawrence Fox, uniting with um, Jeremy Corbyn's brother, uh, Piers uh, Corbyn. Um, and what they're objecting to is vaccine passports. Now, I would object uh, that if I had to go next door to buy my bread, uh, that they wouldn't let me in unless I'd show, show them a piece of paper saying I'd been vaccinated or using my phone uh, to say that I've been uh, vaccinated, you know, um, barring people who can't afford, for example, a smartphone uh, from buying a loaf of bread uh, is completely off. And we should not support that. We should oppose that. On the other hand, you know, would I want my gran being looked after uh, by staff at a, a nursing home uh, that refused to get vaccinated? Well, I'd have to say in the middle of a pandemic, uh, that looks like we could easy, easily get, uh, um, you know, variants coming in from South Africa or Brazil or India or anywhere uh, that uh, the prevalence of uh, uh, this virus remains high. And it's extraordinarily high uh, in India and Brazil um, uh, as we speak. Uh, well, I have to say that, no, I, I would actually support uh, the idea that, you know, if you want to work in that industry, 
uh, you should get yourself uh, vaccinated or you shouldn't be dealing with those people in a frontline way. In the same way, I've got a big hospital uh, over the road uh, from me. If I went into A&E, would I want somebody meeting me, um, you know, who's potentially got COVID? Well, no, I, actually I wouldn't. And I wouldn't want, you know, um, that sort of um, um, danger of um, um, infection uh, breaking out again, certainly when it comes to older people who are more vulnerable uh, uh, to this um, bloody um, uh, virus. Um, on the other hand, you know, when it comes to passports, although I'm in favour of open borders, every time I've been abroad, you know, I have to carry a passport with me. Uh, when I go to third world countries, often I've got to show that I've had jabs for yellow fever, um, hepatitis, that, you know, what you name it. I, you know, had, had so many bloody jabs in my arm in order to go for ver to various countries. And I quite frankly, I just shrug my shoulders and say, well, that's what you have to do to get in uh, to various countries. And um, uh, no, um, you, know, you know, there is such a thing as freedom, uh, but, you know, freedom isn't unbounded. And the analogy I'll give um, is that, you know, we have the freedom if you've got a driving license, with a driving license, uh, to get in a car and drive down the street. But should you have the freedom uh, to choose whether you drive down the left-hand side of the street, the road, as we would call it in Britain, or the right-hand side? Now, we have a, I think it's not the law where, you know, you have to drive on the left in Britain, but it's a convention. So if I got out and drove on the right, um, I'd be having accidents all the time and I would be done for dangerous driving. And I would say, well, that's fair enough. I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, I, I get in a car or as a, 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 a civilian, as a, a pedestrian, I, I cross the zebra crossing and someone mows me down and announces I have the freedom of the road. Um, so, yes, I'm in favour of limits here. I certainly don't trust the government. I can see that the government has an authoritarian agenda and the labor movement and the workers movement need to guard against that. But the workers movement does not support unrestricted um, freedom of action. So we've already been talking about football. Uh, I don't believe that these billionaire, billionaire owners should just have the freedom to do whatever they like uh, with their property, because it isn't just property, it's about community. There should be limits, and I would support limits. I would support legislation uh, when it comes uh, to such issues. So in Britain, for example, there are certain houses, loads of houses you can't just knock down. There are loads of houses that you cannot just modify it, modify as you fancy, right? There are laws, there are bylaws, and there ought to be those laws. We don't want a situation of where, you know, uh, houses uh, that we value collectively, even if we don't live in them, are just flattened uh, for the sake of putting up an office block or a supermarket, uh, for example. So although I have a certain sympathy here uh, for these people uh, and have no sympathy uh, for Boris Bloody Johnson and his deals and his PPE cronyism and um, chumocracy and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, we do support, surely, um, levels of responsibility. And so when it comes to going to the theatre or a football game, uh, I think um, that re a requirement uh, to show that you've been vaccinated uh, isn't a terrible uh, infringement of, uh, I use the bourgeois term, of liberty. Um, um, uh, no, uh, we don't stand uh, for that. So just very quickly, I've mentioned India. I also think it's worthwhile mentioning long COVID. According to the latest reports in Britain, we now have 670,000 people with long COVID. How you define long COVID, I don't know, but that could be for up to a year. It could be six months. Some people have got over it, but other people after a year still have long COVID and it's debilitating. And that's why it was right for us, I think, not that we knew about long COVID at the beginning, but to support measures to clamp down um, um, on this uh, uh, virus. We would be much more sympathetic uh, to the approach of China, Vietnam, 
Cuba, right? But also South Korea, Taiwan, which are clearly uh, unmistakably uh, capitalist uh, uh, countries. You know, Vietnam, I think the figure I quoted last week, 11 deaths. Taiwan, a similar uh, number. Uh, Britain, on the other hand, you know, what is it? Approaching now 150,000 uh, uh, deaths. So we need to understand uh, that this isn't just a question of deaths. It's not just a question of infections. This will be the next crisis to hit uh, the NHS and private insurance in the United States, uh, because a big percentage of people suffer uh, from this long COVID. And that is something that means breathlessness, uh, a foggy brain, uh, inability to walk, uh, inability to focus, um, uh, relapsing um, if you push it too far, so can't go to work. Uh, this is going to be a big uh, crisis. So it isn't something that you can say, oh, uh, COVID just the same as flu. Um, COVID comes also with long COVID. It can be absolutely debilitating. And uh, as I say, they don't know enough about uh, this. Lastly, um, Biden, climate, um, uh, World Climate Day, uh, lots of gesture politics. On the other hand, from Brazil, no gesture politics. The opposite uh, from Australia, no gesture politics, but the promise that the market and technology will sort it out. But in terms of Biden, I would expect uh, the Biden administration and if it's followed by a Harris administration to get something like the target that he set, 50 percent uh, less admissions within 10 years, that's doable. It's something Britain did in essence by defeating the, the NUM and shifting from coal uh, to gas. Um, that's doable. Uh, the difficult thing is then the other 50 percent and then the other 25 percent, then you start getting into difficulties. And remember, in 10 years time, that still means the United States putting out an enormous tonnage of uh, CO2 uh, and other gases. Meanwhile, we get nearer and nearer the tipping point whenever that happens to be. We also have China. Of course, China says, well, we didn't begin it. We didn't begin the Industrial Revolution. That was Britain, the United States, Germany. Absolutely true. But what you have in, in China is more coal-fired uh, stations being built. True, compared with uh, uh, other sources, it gets left behind and then they start to level out. Maybe China will go uh, and start to um, uh, put a limit on coal-fired, but at the moment they're committed to a program of more. Um, so it doesn't look good, that's all I would say. And so we expect more gestures uh, from these world leaders. Meanwhile, everything is predicated on growth. So Biden sells this on the basis of growth, more profits uh, for Wall Street, more profits for big business. And in American terminology, more well-paid union middle-class jobs. It's what we in Britain call working class. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm told what a, a middle-class person looks like in the United States, I go, oh, just one of us, in other words, people with ordinary jobs. And they're in a union. Wow. Um, OK, last point in terms of this particular subject and finishing with this is we had uh, six people in trial um, from 2019. Uh, these were Extinction Rebellion protesters who went down to Shell headquarters down there on the Thames in central London and smashed the windows and caused 25,000 quids worth of damage. Um, five of them. Um, 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 said not guilty. Uh, one who just had a child has got two kids at home and is breastfeeding when, okay, I'm guilty. What was brilliant is that the judge said that these people have got no grounds uh, for claiming uh, to be not guilty. They've got no defense in law. The jury then turned around and said not guilty. And so they're free. And uh, why are they free? Because they pleaded on the basis of politics and uh, juries are selected at random. We can go into the details of that, but they're selected at random. And that tells you something about democratic opinion, at least in Britain, shifting. 
away from the idea these people causing disruption let's give them you know six months in prison or a hefty fine that will tell them not to do it again uh, to the point of where they identify with these people who caused 25,000 quids worth of damage didn't identify with the judge didn't identify with the police and certainly didn't identify uh, with shell oil uh, and that's a, a, a democratic victory we've had uh, other victories uh, brilliant victories from the jury system in Britain. It's why we support the jury system in Britain. We've had people who've um, sprung uh, Russian spies, found innocent by juries. Uh, we've had uh, our own comrades um, found uh, um, not guilty of conspiracy um, um, by juries. Uh, we've had Greenham Common women found not guilty by juries. That's why we stand for the jury system. It, it, it's something where whatever the law says, uh, we support these people. And that's a great democratic uh, gain that needs to be defended. It used to be all men. It used to be upper class men. It can now be unemployed uh, people um, on a jury. So a jury isn't perfectly representative, uh, but nonetheless, this is why so many lawyers uh, I'm talking about judges uh, hate uh, the jury system and top politicians hate the jury system and would get rid of it uh, if they could. That's it. Thank you, Stan.